Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. If you're like me, it's now the end of the day, and you say, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to have for dinner? Well, here's the solution. Eating better is easy with Factors Delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You're going to have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Flexible for your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive then take out, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash smirconish50 and use code smirconish50 because you'll get 50% off. That's code smirconish50 at factormeals.com slash smirconish50. Get your 50% off. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to Book Club with Michael Smirkanish. Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. As a Sirius XM and CNN host, I'm known for speaking, but frankly, I read for a living. I need to know what to say, and so I consume over two dozen newspapers and websites daily. I read opposing views and studies and court cases and orders and op-eds just so I can discuss current events on radio and television. But my favorite reading? Books. Old school. And my favorite interviews? are with book authors. Book Club with Michael Smirconish is now in session. I love a brand new book. It is sensational. For 25 years post-presidency, Gene Becker was chief of staff to then-former President George H.W. Bush, Bush 41. She has written the most extraordinary book about the man. It is like no other that you'll read about him. I'm not taking anything away from all the best which was terrific and very unique. It was a collection of letters, letters written by President Bush during the course of his life, which were put in chronological order and and reassembled his life and times. I thought that John Meacham did a terrific job in destiny and power. But as I told Gene last night in an email, I just finished this book, which is called The Man I Knew, and I was both laughing and crying. This is Gene Becker. Hey, Gene, thank you so much, and congratulations. I would not say it if I didn't mean it. I, I'm i so overwhelmed by the introduction, Michael. I don't even know if, it, if I can talk. 
Thank you so much. It, it was really fun writing the book. Oh, I can tell. And I will try not to give it all away for free because people need to buy and own this book. But let me get into the subject matter this way. So they leave they leave the White House, he more so than she, but both of them understandably upset about the loss to Bill Clinton. They split their time between Houston and Kenny Bunkport, or as you would say, Walker's Point. Barbara cuts loose the former first lady, her Secret Service detail, 41 buys her a blue mercury sable. And before you know it, the two of them, but she more than he, are now at Sam's Club. Really? Okay, the Sam's Club obsession worried me for a while, actually. You know, these were two people who had lived in a bubble for 12 years, when you think about it, eight years as vice president and four years in the White House. And I think as much as possible, they tried to live a normal life. They would go out to dinner when they were in in the White House and do things like that. But as disappointed as President Bush was to lose the election, and he was very disappointed and took a while to get over that. They also sort of loved rediscovering life as the rest of the world is living it. Sam's Club, they went at least once a week. And let me point out, they lived alone, the two of them. You don't need to go to see, and they would get this uh, like pulley cart, like a, like a flatbed sure. cart and, and pull it around the store. I'm telling you somewhere there's still huge containers of Cheetos left over because <laughs> they bought more Cheetos than anyone I ever heard of. It was, they were, but they loved it. Okay, and in similar vein of rediscovering normal life, you mean to tell me that 41 sees a TV commercial for a princess cruise and he books it? Yes, he books a a cruise, a commercial cruise while on the princess line. He doesn't tell his wife. It was a surprise to her. I am convinced if he had told her, Michael, Maybe she would have talked him out of it. But a month after leaving the White House, the two of them go on a princess cruise. I called it the love boat. (laughs) And can you imagine being on that cruise ship and you're walking around in your swimsuit and your cover up and you're having an afternoon cocktail and here comes George and Barbara Bush. I'm sure people did a double take. After a couple of nights in the dining room when they got mobbed, the captain eventually had them eat dinner in his cabin because they were just getting mobbed in the dining room. But the funniest thing that happened is President Bush was working out early one morning in the gym on, on the love boat. And he takes a shower in the gym on the love boat. He probably should have gone back to their room. He comes out of the shower and there's a man with a camera waiting to take his picture. And maybe the only time that I knew him that he said, could you not take a picture right now? He was stark naked. After <laughs> uh, in this similar vein of of normal life, I know that you were worried about 41's whereabouts on September 11. And you make contact with him and he explains that you need not be concerned. You tell it. Where exactly was he and what was he doing? Um, Well, we had begun, all of the three of us had begun the morning in Washington, D.C. We were in Washington for a meeting of a cancer group that they had uh, founded, the National Dialogue on Cancer. 
And they stayed at the White House the morning of September 11th. I'm in a hotel. And their wheels up from Reagan Airport, bright and early. They're headed to Minneapolis, St. Paul, where they're both giving speeches that day. And I stayed behind in Washington to attend uh, a board meeting. And then 9-11 happens and the whole world changes for everybody. And I pick up, picked up the phone and I called the Secret Service command post in Kennebunkport, where we were based at that time. And I said, where are they? Because I, I, I know they had grounded all the planes. And I said, where, where are they? And the agent said to me, thank, thank you for calling. They are so worried about you. Where are you? And I said, I'm fine. I'm, I'm at the Renaissance Hotel. I'm safe. I'm fine. Where are they? And the agent said, I cannot tell you that. You're not on a secure line. They're, they have been taken to a secure, undisclosed location that I cannot tell you on an open line. So I got that. I assume they were in West Virginia, that now not so secret place in sure. West Virginia under the Greenbrier, I think, where all of Washington was going to be evacuated <laughs> in a nuclear war. I'm like, I know where they are. I wasn't born yesterday. Well, that evening, everybody in the hotel is gathered in the lobby bar. The hotel had brought out some big screen TVs so we could all watch the president address the nation. And my cell phone rings. And the whole bar turned and looked. I still don't know how that call got through. Cell phone service in Washington on 9-11 was very spotty. And my cell phone rings, so I answer it. And it's George Herbert Walker Bush. And I said, sir, I'm so happy to hear from you. And he said, how are you? Are you safe? Are you okay? What's going on? So I said, yes, yes, yes. I said, I know you can't tell me where you are because we're on open line, but I'm just so happy to hear your voice. I know you've been taken to a secure, undisclosed location. And he said, what are you talking about? He says, Barr and I are at the Hampton Inn outside Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I said, a Hampton Inn? I thought you were at the Greenbrier underground in the nuclear war tunnels. He says, right. well, Gene, we feel pretty safe here. We don't think anyone's going to find us here. They had just walked across the street and had dinner at Outback Steakhouse. <laughs> President Bush admitted, he said, Gene, I think people were a little surprised when we walked oh in. God. We had not eaten all day. We've been watching TV all day. We've talked to George several times. He's calm and wonderful. He says, we realized we needed to eat. So we went to Outback Steakhouse and people seemed surprised and they gave us a standing ovation. He said it was so sweet. It's a job that you were never formally hired for, right? You were going to be a caretaker and, uh, you know, 25 years later, you're still there doing it. Well, it, we, so I went to Houston with them after they lost the election. I was Mrs., one of Mrs. Bush's deputy press secretaries at the White House. And she asked me to come to Houston to help her with her memoirs, to be the researcher, be her editor. She wrote the book herself, which she was very proud of. But I was her sidekick. And about the time we were done with the book, President Bush's chief of staff, Rosa Maria, retired. And he asked me if I would just fill in, this would have been March of 94, until he could figure out who to bring in. He says, I really need to think this through. 
could you just stay and for a while? And, you know, Michael, I didn't know how to be a chief of staff. I'd never been anyone's boss. I've really never been in charge of anything. I never had done a budget. And I told him that. I said, I don't know how to be chief of staff. He said, well, just <laughs> fill in, keep the seat warm. And I promise you by Labor Day, I will have hired someone. We never talked about it again until like 25 years later, I said to him, you know, for 25 years, I've been waiting for you to walk into my office and say, oh, Gene, I've hired a chief of staff. You're free to go. <laughs> we didn't have time to talk about it. He was suddenly off and running. What's so wonderful about the, uh, the book are the stories that you share, including the foibles, including the, the, just the <laughs> funny stuff and the I'll, I'll put it in the category of stuff happens. And very early on in the book, you do tell one of your favorites, which is about Prince Bandar. Do you mind sharing that? I promise we're not going to give it all away. Um, first of all, my editor, the great Sean Desmond at 12, he's convinced this book could be the basis for a sitcom TV show. Absolutely. I agree with that. Mainly because yeah, things were not always perfect in the office of George Bush. So Prince Bandar... This was the day I decided to write this book. When this happened, I thought, oh, my God, Jean, you got to write a book. Prince Bandar was a Saudi ambassador to the United States for something like 30 years. He was very close to President Bush, both President Bushes. And by this time, he was back in Saudi Arabia. He basically was heading up the equivalent of the Saudi CIA. And I get a call from the great Margaret Tutwiler, who was very close to Secretary Baker, Secretary Baker's right-hand person during the administration. And she told me that there were rumors everywhere. She was getting phone calls that Bandar had been assassinated by the Syrians. And she wanted to know if I had heard anything. Well, I had not heard a thing. Uh, it's not the type of gossip I would typically hear. But I called the CIA. Uh, they always had someone dedicated to President Bush. They loved him as their former DCI. And I called our person and she said, we're, aware, we're very aware of these rumors. We have boots on the ground. We're checking all our sources. We think it's true. He has not been seen in public for weeks. He's disappeared. So I waited to tell him, just waiting to get more information. And Margaret called me and she said, the French press has, is, has gone public. It's going to be all over CNN and American press soon. You need to tell him, Gene. If you haven't told him, you need to tell him right now before he hears it on CNN. So I took her advice and I told him, we were down at the office and I knew he was going to take it really hard. And, and he looked at me very calmly. And he said, did you try to call Prince Bandar on his phone? And I said, no, never occurred to me to call Prince Bandar. I would not be calling Prince Bandar. He says, well, let's get him on the phone. So I told his great aide, Jim Appleby, to get Prince Bandar on the phone. And Jimmy looked at me like I was crazy. He said, have you told him? I said, Jimmy, see if you can get Prince Bandar on his cell phone. And about five seconds later, Jimmy Appleby yells in, up into President Bush's office, Prince Bandar on line one. And this is the conversation I hear, Michael. President Bush is on the phone. Bandar, hey man, dead or alive? Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> and then he covers alive. the phone and he looks at me and he says, he's alive. And I said, I caught on to that. 
Yes, I see that. So he gets off the phone and he says, now, Gene, well, first of all, he calls Secretary Baker. He calls General Brent Scowcroft. He says, great news. Bandar is alive. I just talked to him. Secretary Baker actually called me back and said, what phone number do you have for Bandar that he managed to get him in some bunker somewhere? <laughs> and he, he anyway, uh, President Bush said, now, Gene, this is a great life lesson for you. If there is confusion about whether someone's dead or alive, the first thing you do is you call them. And if they answer the phone, they're alive. Right. Michael, I learned something from him every day. It's a good point. You know? Oh, man. So to finish the story, the CIA called me. The poor CIA analyst called me like two hours later. I, I should have called her, and I didn't, which I felt bad. And she called me, and she says, Gene, we're still trying to confirm we really do think it's true. You might want to think about telling him. And so I took a deep breath and I said, Cal Bandar is alive. And she said, and how would you know that? I said, because President Bush called him on his cell phone and he answered the phone. <laughs> and she said, she hesitated and she said, we're putting him back on payroll. <laughs> I, I had to write the book. You can't let oh that my God. Hey, uh, it's June of 2012, and you are at Walker's Point in the golf cart with 41, looking out at the ocean. Can you just oh. paint the picture and, and tell everybody what's going on? So one of the things that President Bush is quite proud of um, is the fact, is this the aircraft carrier? Yeah, yeah. Because I was we just trying to, to imagine, sure. as I'm reading, as I'm reading the book, I'm just trying to imagine what would it have been like to be you, and oh. to share that moment with him. Um, okay, I'm going to try to tell this without crying. I can do this. So President Bush has the there's the newest aircraft carrier is the George H W Bush, um, and he's just so proud of that. He's such a great Navy man. Of course, he flew off an aircraft carrier in World War II as a Navy pilot. And the carrier is based in Norfolk when it's not deployed, which it's been deployed a lot. But President Bush had this idea, he always had ideas, that maybe the aircraft carrier could come to Maine on one of its training exercises. So I called the captain and he was all for the idea, but they were getting ready to deploy. And he said, let's talk about this when we come home. So that was, I don't know, six to nine months later. And so we re-engage on this idea and they couldn't get permission to do it. Their training exercises all, they would go out of the Norfolk base and make a, I, I would say, make a right. They would go to Florida. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I finally, you know, I said, and the captain was so on my side. He just says he wanted to make this happen. And I said, well, couldn't you maybe just make a left? You come out of Norfolk and you make a wrong turn and you wake up one morning as Captain Lex Luthor. And and he said, you know, maybe on some foggy morning I can claim, you know, it got mixed up. Well, someone in the Navy further up in the Pentagon, I think a light bulb went on that there was a former president, a former Navy pilot who flew off aircraft carriers in World War II, got shot down. Um, had an aircraft carrier name for him. And he was thinking it might be fun if that ship came to Maine. It's not like we were in Iowa, Michael. 
I mean, right. we were right on the sure. Atlantic coast. So sure enough, they saw the light and the aircraft carrier came. And it was a Sunday morning in June of 2012. And we knew it was going to be there any minute. And President Bush and I are in the office at Walker's Point And we're on a golf cart driving back to the house when we saw it. I mean, just it, and if, if you haven't seen an aircraft carrier in your lifetime, you have to make an effort. It's just the most beautiful thing to see that beautiful ship out the Atlantic Ocean. There it was. And we just stopped. <clears throat> and I finally said to him, how does it feel to see that ship and know that it's the George H.W. Bush? He couldn't answer. <clears throat> there, were, there were no words. Can I tell you, and thank you for being so gracious with your time. By the way, this is Gene Becker, and the book is The Man I Knew. And you can tell from the granular details of these stories, yes, she really knew him. One of the stories (laughs) that may surprise you that jumped off the page at me, just because I thought it was so telling about him, is that Maria Shriver leaves Arnold Schwarzenegger. By the way, I love Arnold, love Arnold in the same way I I, I love Bush 41. And he thinks I should call Arnold. You say to him, well, you know, there's a reason she's leaving him. So maybe not. And when you explain that to him, he says, well, and I'm paraphrasing all the more reason because nobody else is calling him today. You know, one of the reasons I wrote the book, Michael, is he really did leave us a blueprint on how to live a life well lived. Right. Yes. Just by example. And not by, yes, a lot by what he said. Also, he was such a great writer and and he wrote some great pieces of advice. But just watching him, I learned so much. And that would be one of the days I had a little bit of attitude. Mrs. Bush was not home. I think she would have been on my side. But the big news is that Maria Shriver is leaving Arnold Schwarzenegger because he had an affair with a housekeeper and they had a love child. And all this came out and President Bush says, I think I should call Arnold and tell him I'm thinking of him. And I did not feel that Arnold Schwarzenegger deserved to hear from George Bush that day. I was totally opposed to this. And he overruled me. He said that I didn't get it. He said, Gene, this is the kind of day that you call a friend. He says, I'm not saying I approve of what he did, but he's a friend and he probably could use a friendly voice or two. So the same day, Jimmy Appleby got him on the phone. I think I refused to help. And Jimmy got him on the phone (laughs) and just listening to him talk to him. He absolutely was right. He needed to make that phone call. And and I could tell that that Arnold was so grateful and so surprised to hear from him. And President Bush was the best at reaching out to people. He once called Dan Rosinkowski, the in former jail. very powerful congressman from Chicago. He called him in prison. Right. Which is another <laughs> whole story. We're going to make people read the book. But he okay, once we called are. Dan Rosinkowski and prison. And I'm just, just to check in with him. I'm like, well, I don't think people in prison, but I'm not proud of this, but I did put it in the book. I could be a little, um, 
I want to watch my language here. A little flippant with the 41st president once a while, once in a while. He got off the phone and he said, Gene, don't you, you know, I'm so glad I called them. And you need to call people when they're having a bad day. And he said, can you think of anybody else? I'm going to call somebody else. Who else should we call? I'm not proud of this. That was the same week or within the time period that Osama bin Laden had been found and killed. And I said to him, I'm thinking Osama bin Laden's five widows are not having a good week. Should we see if we can get them on the phone? (laughs) I wish I had a picture of the look I got. I deserved it. That was not a good thing to say. (laughs) I don't want to I don't want to bring you down because this is so much fun, but. It's November 30, 2018, and Secretary Baker comes to the House twice, and this, this, this cuts me to the quick, and President Bush asks him a question. President Bush asked him when he came the first time, um, President Bush said to Secretary Baker, where are we going, Baker? Because Secretary Baker was dressed very nicely. He says, where are we going? Are we going somewhere? And Secretary Baker looked at him. He always called him El Jefe, which means the boss in Spanish. And he said, well, I don't know where you're going, Jefe, but where I'm, I know where you're going, Jefe. You're going to heaven. And uh, President Bush said to him, that's good news, Jimmy. That's where I want to go. I want to go to heaven. And then he came back that that night, he and Susan, and they were there when he died. Secretary Baker was rubbing his feet. It was so sweet. It was a sweet moment. For the benefit of those who are watching on YouTube, over your right shoulder, tell us what that is, and then and then I'll say thank you and so long. Over my right shoulder is a painting of his dad that the 43rd president did for me after his dad died. I just treasure that painting. It's usually in my living room, but I've, I've moved it to my office, at my home office, uh, just so I could... I want people to see it while I'm on this virtual book tour. It's such an extraordinary painting of his dad and just meant the world to me when he gave it to me. And um, he is really talented. That is a great painting of his dad. Well, a tribute to Gene Becker, I'm sure, from all things Bush about your your loyal service to the man. I, I have no doubt, having read the book, why 43 would want to give 41's chief of staff... <laughs> That kind of acknowledgement. Gene, I honestly, I wouldn't say it if I didn't believe it. You had me laughing and crying. It's sensational. And as much as I loved all the best and I love Meacham, only you could have provided this level of, of insight. So good. Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much. Okay. I wish you good things. And I want people to read this book. It is called The Man I Knew. Thank you, Gene. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. What a sensational, sensational book. Oh my gosh, the stories. Book Club with Michael Smirconish. New episodes drop Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen to the Michael Smirconish program. Weekdays on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124 and anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com.